Listen, players. <laughs> You're listening to the Movement, Strength and Play podcast by the School of Calisthenics. Here are your hosts, Tim and Jacko. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. And this week we are joined by a guest. It's been a while since we've had a guest on Jacko. So it's nice to get some, uh, somebody with a different brain on rather than just yours and mine. Um, so we, this week we've got Holly Middleton from Flow Movement Therapy on. Holly is a movement coach with a particular specialism in gait and biomechanics. So we're talking a lot in this conversation around particularly the foot running mechanics, but also just this, the importance of centering in on understanding movement efficiency, what high quality movement looks like and how that understanding could potentially be the source of resolving some of the movement issues that you and pain that you could be experiencing. Yes, and um, it's, uh, we, we have the, the beautiful example of, we've got one of these specialists that um, myself and Tim might ask a couple of questions of one of these uh, oh, my friend's got this little problem with their running or with their with their, with their foot under this um, but uh, yeah hopefully uh, you will be able to take a lot away from uh, from this session uh, from this from this podcast and uh, yeah it's, it's a great conversation it's um, it's nice speaking with you know another another practitioner or the coach that um, is looking at things very holistically looking at it in it with a wide lens and and yes having some working on in isolation for things that need a little bit of love and attention but with an appreciation of how that works throughout the whole kinetic chain so she starts you know she's she's talking our language and uh, i think you're really going to enjoy this one great so sit back and enjoy holly middleton on the movement strength and play podcast roll that jingle So Holly, welcome to the Movement Strength and Play podcast. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me today. It's going to be an interesting conversation, I think. Now, yes, we are very excited. Uh, I think both me and Tim, from a personal perspective, will be asking you some, <laughs> some... I've got a friend that's got a problem with uh, this part of the... Um, and uh, so there may be a few of those types of, uh, types of questions. But um, just, uh, for, just for the listeners to set the, set the scene as, as a movement coach specialising in uh, biomechanics and breathing, just give us a little bit of a, a, a quick intro in, into your background and what it is that um, you're going to help me and Tim, I mean, help uh, the listeners and everyone with <laughs> okay so i am a movement coach i have worn a bunch of different hats in my life i have always been a curious person so i grew up with a bunch of scientists so always interested in processes and systems and asking why and so a lot of the the background behind what i do is always l wanting to understand things a little bit better and so i had a, a background in biology i spent quite a bit of time in school for that just getting my thought processes together the the ways of thinking about systems. And then I also spent a lot of time on the other side of things with movement. So I was a dancer for about 30 years, different uh, styles of dance at high levels. And I've been through my share of injuries. So that curiosity about my body led me to wanting to understand more. And I had a lot of time spent trying to figure things out, um, never really getting solutions to it until I found the work that I do now. And many of us have this story of, well, this thing worked for me, so I want to specialize it and share with other people. And so what that thing was, was what we're going to talk about today, which is anatomy and motion. 
and it's a blueprint of the way we move through our gait cycle. It focuses on every single joint throughout your entire body and that helps you restore movements that are missing from your body because of, we like to say, things are deleted from your memory bank <laughs> in yeah. order to compensate around different things. And so I went through my injuries with my dancing and never been able to figure out what was going on, as well as my breathing and what was going on with asthma and anxiety and things that were going on. And so I went through a deep dive myself and, and found out the, well, still a pro work in progress, but figuring out these things in my body, um, all to do with little things that I had no idea that were deleted from my awareness and mm. all within my gait cycle. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, a an overview of me. <laughs> yeah. Many, many questions. <laughs> Amazing. Who, where, uh, Timbo, where, I, I feel like you'll be ready to go. I've got like a really broad, massive, slight curveball that I'm ready to ask, but I'll go second. But I'm just prepping. All right, let's just let's just talk a little bit about gates because we can zoom out and then we can go into a little bit of the, the our friends' problems. Um, <laughs> one thing I find fascinating about gates is that the human brain is wired into recognizing these patterns of movement way before. Like, so say for example, I'll probably rephrase this question: You can spot someone that you know from far away by how they move and walk before you can actually see their face, right? I think there's a, and what is it around gait and the human brain and that kind of pattern recognition, which is, I just find that fascinating that you don't need to see someone's face and be like, oh, that's my mate, because I can see how he walks or holds himself. Is that, is there anything that is worth sharing around that kind of, to tee us up? Sure. Yeah. Well, we, we are, as humans, in order for us to survive as long as we did, we needed had to have pattern recognition. So it's things like, is that sound a lion in the bush or is it a twig falling out of a tree, right? These little pattern recognitions, we've got really, really good yeah, at them. Twig. Same thing with faces. Like you can see a face in a grilled cheese sandwich, right? These sort of patterns that our <laughs> brains are able to invent. Or when I look at the constellations, it looks like a frying pan. Well, it doesn't look like a frying pan to me but this is the sort of things that we're our brains are really really good at recognizing patterns because it allowed us to survive and so being able to notice if uh, your your friend uh, walking towards you before you even know them part of that is that you've probably built that skill as movement professionals you got you guys have both uh, got really good mirror neurons being able to recognize things uh, but I think anybody would be able to say oh that's my mom I can tell just from many, many yards away that that's my mom. Uh, but these patterns, the interesting thing is that we all have our unique way of moving. And it's not something that we can change by thinking about it. So I've had so many people tell me, oh, well, um, like I'll, I'll do gait uh, analysis. So I'll get a video of my new clients and they'll ask me, how do you want me to walk? And I said, what, what do you mean, how do you want me to walk? Well, my chiropractor told me I should think about this, and my Pilates instructor told me I think about that. And then I saw this video on the internet, and it told me I should think about that. And so they've got all this going on in their head, and they're trying to change how they walk. But the trouble with that is that you can't. <laughs> right? Like, it's so much brain work, and your body goes, well, we've created this way of moving to keep you as efficient as you can be with all the parameters that have hit your body throughout your life. And you want me to, to, to cerebralize and try to change this basic way of getting throughout your, your space, but then you trip over something, right? Like it's, you've seen those videos of people texting and falling into fountains, right? Like to, to try to change things like that, it's really challenging. And the other 
trouble that happens with that is when you try to change something like, oh, the way I heel strike or um, I need to rotate to the left, then your body goes, okay, but now my knee hurts because you haven't really taught the body how to accept that new idea, that new concept of how to move a different body part. And now something else is breaking down because it's like, well, we were doing great <laughs> with the, the way we were moving initially. And so then you've introduced this thing without really giving a, um, the rest of the system something to do with this new input. And so it's going to do its best with this forced change but then something else is going to be like, I don't like this. I don't like this. And it's going to start barking at you. So yeah. often I'll have people say, well, you know, I, I was told that I should heel strike this way. And now my knee hurts. And now I can't lift this. And, and so we want to be a little bit thinking a little bit um, upside down about changing patterns so that we're getting a little bit more of working with the neuroplasticity of the brain and allow it to adjust around new inputs rather than sort of enforcing something on the body. Mm. I'm um, I'm excited because my ran potentially random question is going to feel slightly less random now, and, and actually leading on from what Tim <laughs> okay. said, I I had it I had it the other day where I literally seen someone that looked like someone I knew, and was actually had that like holding themselves with the same type of posture, like I literally had, but I knew it wasn't them, but I was like it felt a little bit like. Um, I was in a computer game or in some sort of weird thing where you like, you know, like life just feels a bit weird. Like that feel like that that feels like someone's put that there or like the Truman Show or something like that. Um, but yeah, yeah. No, my 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 sort of thing initially when you as you meant because it, it triggered it from a point of view of going right now I specialize in this because of the um, because of the the troubles I was having and how I've seen it impact me and um, we're totally like that. I totally get that. Um, and we've spoken to a lot of different specialists in diff various different areas on, on the podcast, and, and we see this sort of all the time. Um, and when we've had the impact done to ourselves, it's very um, it's very hard not to be evangelical about that in, in a way. But appreciating at the same time, or well, my question is sort of twofold: that N is one in that I'm actually just one person. So just because it fixed me, like, is it the correct assumption to think it's going to fix everyone else? Whereas, as you mentioned, everyone is sort of like uniquely different and uniquely brilliant. But at the same time, with something like gait, posture, walking, um, there I feel like there must be this sort of like hybrid between we're not all exactly the same, but we have like a blueprint of the skeleton that is like roughly the same. Our nervous system is wide the same. We're, we're designed to breathe in a certain way. It's not like someone just doesn't have... A diaphragm and they breathe a different way. Do you know what I mean? We 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 have, um, yeah, we have those unique differences, but then we have these like hardwired ways of doing things. And I guess my third, I don't even know if it's a question. Maybe it is. Maybe it'll turn to one eventually. But the, th the third thing that would make me think about is that way of learning to like walk when we're talking about gait or even just stand has been learned through just exploration as a kid with no guidance other than mum and dad going, "Hey, come on, yeah, try, try, try." Um, and is it, yeah, is it, is it right? Is it, is it right to think that this is going to be beneficial for everyone because it's part of that hard, wide thing and we do it so much, like we, we always are standing and we're always are walking. So the sheer volume of, of the thing that we're doing, or is there an element, um, potentially of, you know, this could be something to look at, 
but equally it might not be the thing that's causing your specific problems whatever the person is where do where do you stand on that yeah so um not everybody is right like you say not everyone is right for every modality and often i'll i'll need to have a conversation with someone before we start because sometimes um movement isn't what you need yet so sometimes your nervous system is um, holding a pattern or you're dealing with um, emotions or different things that are underlying those reasons why you're in the state that you're in. And you need those addressed first before your body will accept movement. And so I've had lots of people come to me when I was earlier in my practice and they'll, they'll be like, I just need to move and I just, I know this is what I need. And we start and their nervous system is just a hard stop. Like, nope, nope not for me and it causes pain flare-ups and things get worse yeah and what, so is, what the, I've sorry, discovered just, is that just to jump yeah. what, just for people, someone listening to go like um what is that hard when when you say the nervous system is saying no like some people listening to that will be like oh but, but what does so what does that mean is that me like they're going is that me have, have i got that like what what is what, what would be a telltale sign of that so a couple of things i've seen is that your pain flare-up gets worse so you, um, we, we move a body part that used to be injured and is healed and is ready, you know, it's not an acute injury anymore, and we start moving you and the pain gets worse and worse and worse. When I send you home with your exercises, it's unbearable, or you just can't do them. Or if we try to move you even a few millimeters, your body will get in your way, or you may have an emotional reaction to it, or you just feel like you want to run from the room. And so I'll often have people who just their body is saying, this is not the place, this is not the time, this is not the thing that I need. And so that's partly just the experience as a practitioner to notice. Yeah. I, I'm tuning in all the time with my patients, um, their, their neural edge, so to speak. So how their body is responding to the information I'm giving them and seeing yeah. whether it's a yay or a nay. So I'm checking in with them all the time. Does that feel better or worse? Is that helping you or not? Do you think we're on the right track? How is that we go back to check with movements that we're missing? Is that better or worse? Mm -hmm. And so I'm wanting to continue on with, with, with work that the body is saying yes. And I want to either look somewhere else in the body, so moving a different body part, or sending them out to someone I can refer to prepare their nervous system to be ready for movement. So it really depends. And, and when I get a new client, I'm, it's, like, it's like a first date. We know nothing about each other. <laughs> We're trying to figure out what's going on, trying to see what's, what's happening, and to see if the, the movement is a right fit for them. And I don't, sometimes I just don't know that until, until I start working with them. Cool. Cool. Super interesting. Um, so the, how much we go from here? I'm just going to – sorry, my question. <laughs> um, when – I'm going to dive into a little bit and just give it. I was just wondering whether it would be useful to give you an, an applied case study. Um, and it happens to me. Um, <laughs> I've got this friend. If I do that, I've got to try and keep that act up for the whole time. <laughs> just try and work out this through. Now, I know you're a big proponent of barefoot living, walking, these kind of getting, getting, and you can talk a little bit about that to tee this up if you want to. Um, let me give you my, 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 my case study. During lockdown, I started running uh, more regularly. Um, as a lot of people did, and we've done some work with the guys at Vivo Barefoot before. So I was running in barefoot shoes, the Geo Racers, they are thin, and I was running, and so there's not much cushioning, and there's a minimal shock absorption, and I was running on concrete quite a lot, relatively quickly. Now, I've transitioned into kind of like more like barefoot style running for quite a while, but 
I've probably loaded it a little bit too much during that period of, the, of history and have since developed some plantar fasciitis, so pain in the mornings on the heel. Um, and it's a bit of a pain in the arse to get rid of, despite my best efforts. Um, so there probably is a little bit in there around, if somebody is sort of thinking about transitioning, let's start there around barefoot, walking, running, what are kind of the go-tos around that, and things to be mindful of, how to do it well. And then if you've got any advice for somebody else like me, and all the questions we get in about plantar fasciitis, there are many, many people benefit from that bit of advice, Jack, I don't think. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, go for that one, and I, and I will then <laughs> adopt whatever the advice you can <laughs> give me, because I, I can say what I'm doing. <laughs> Start with barefoot sure. running. So we want to, with any new, new inputs into your body, whether it's transitioning to new types of shoes, changing your environment in any way, we want to not shock the system. So we want to give it a heads up. We want to give it the time it needs to adjust to get you there. And a lot of people uh, I've in Facebook groups for people that love uh, barefoot and, and transitioning uh, to barefoot shoes. And we get a lot of the questions from new people who are like, I'm so excited. I found this group. I'm so excited about barefoot shoes. And I went and bought some and it's great. And now my feet hurt. What do I do? And they haven't done the <laughs> prep work to be able to be ready for what they're, they're doing. And so we encourage them to, you know, exercises, stretches, mobility, things to prepare your foot to be able to not have all that support and cushioning that it's used to probably for, for decades. And to be able to get the foot, not just the foot, but the whole rest of the body prepared to manage this new environment that you're giving it. Um, and then what we often do is we ask, like you've, you're aware, the, the, what kind of load have you given? Have you suddenly increased your training? And so that's another, another trigger for, for the symptoms that you're feeling is we, we didn't um, progressively load the amount of work we're doing, or you changed your running on concrete instead of a softer surface or something like that. You've changed something about the environment. So we would want to um, address the, if it's an acute phase, of course, you want to support it a little bit more, but you want to be able to give yourself the mobility and exercises and strengthening and the, the proper movements back to not just your feet, but the whole rest of the structure to support getting into and out of those, those shapes as you're running. And then we want to look at, yeah. um, with plantar fasciitis, is often that those tissues at the bottom of your foot are stretched out all the time. They don't get a time to relax. And it can take quite a, I know plantar fasciitis takes quite a lot of time to heal. Partly, I, I believe, I'm not a podiatrist, but I, I believe that there's less um, like circulation going to those types of tissues, so it's slower to heal because it just doesn't get as, the nutrients as quickly. So we want to give it the time to heal. But what we want to do is once you're out of the acute phase is we want to start teaching your foot the movement that it's missing. So that would be being able to pronate, so that's dropping your arches and, and loading all the tissues down at the bottom of the foot, and then being able to lift those arches back up again. So I'm creating with my hands, I'm pushing my all the arches down to the ground and then lifting those arches back up again. And so that would be pronation and supination. So we want to be able to get into and out of those shapes what in, on whatever surface that you're on, whether it's flat or it's knobbly or whatever you're, you're on. And then be able to get your whole body to pronate and supinate. So we often hear about pronation and supination. We talk about that in the, the foot or, you know, in arms, that's a, mm -hmm. a biome biomechanical term, pronation and supination of the arm. But that is a... 
uh, that's a structure that we think of the structure of the feet as pronating and supinating, but the whole body participates in that. So the whole body creates a shape of pronation. The whole body creates a shape of supination. So we want to support not just the feet being able to do all those fancy things and all those joints, but the whole body being able to also do that to support those movements. And that's something that's often missing is we do foot stuff. We think we're, you know, the mobility is great. We've got the, the strength there, but we don't realize that the whole body has to communicate with and support the feet to make those shapes. Yeah. yeah. It's also, um, it's just, it is a frustrating one because it's been lingering for a while. And because I'm stubborn and like wearing barefoot, barefoot shoes and also spending time as much barefoot as possible, that's also probably not being particularly helpful. So I need to just... Because it, like it, it's the it's the cushioning, right? Like the, the tissue just if, I, if I'm working barefoot all the time, it's continuing to like impact that that tissue around the heel or the plantar fascia tissue. Um, so I'm trying, but I'm trying not. To, I don't want to stop wearing my barefoot shoes to let it heal. Yeah, <laughs> so that patience kind of piece. <laughs> got to bite the bullet, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Could but thank you. Could for that. there be an element of um, maybe something in Tim's? day-to-day um gait that is meaning that not just the the new environment because it's now it's you know that that's that's year it's been a few years since he's been wearing um a barefoot style shoe it could it be that the gait needs to be addressed in the that would offload those tissues even more than him trying to physically offload it with like some some mobilizations and some soft tissue or is that I've got so many questions on this yeah, so um, back to uh, one of your first questions was about whether the gait is and this the movements and restoring gait is right for everybody and whether everybody moves in a certain way. Um, the blueprint that we use in anatomy and motion is the way all of the joint surfaces are put together. And all of that is, uh, builds up to a model of, well, if you add gravity and momentum and joint surfaces, the end result is that this joint should do this with this joint following doing this and this and this so that the whole skeleton creates a certain type of movement if, only if, the brain allows access to full range of motion in each of those joints. So if you have injured something and you're protecting it and your nervous system says, well, say for like a sprained ankle, we never want to go into that sprained ankle shape. That was bad news. So we're never going to make that shape again. So we're going to find another way of doing that. But we're going to delete from your awareness that you even have that shape accessible to you. And then you heal up. The tissues are fine. You go back about your life. But you never make that shape again. And then 20, 30 years later, the other knee hurts. The other hip hurts. The opposite shoulder hurts. And we wonder why. And so what we want to do and what anatomy in motion does is it doesn't say, okay, when you're walking, I want you to bend your knee at this time. And then I want you to side bend your torso at this time. What we do is we reintroduce the movements for your to, to you being able to find your full range of motion with all of the coordination of all of the parts above and below at the right timings, the right speed, and doing the right things together. So the cueing is about getting the bones into the right place so that they can then do their job. And so it cleans everything up by just getting you an awareness that, okay, so I have that ability to go there and it doesn't hurt. So hello brain, this part exists. Mm. You can use this again because that's not bad. 
And so it just lets your brain through neuroplasticity go, oh, I have that thing. You're right. It doesn't hurt anymore. So let's do a little bit more of that, which frees other things up to do their thing. So although the work that I do is about gait, the gait is an assessment tool. So I'm looking at your gait for, for me to be able to tell what you have access to and what you don't. Uh, just without your awareness of that. So your gait will change through me being able to give you back the movements that are missing from your awareness in your nervous system. I'm not telling you how to walk. I'm using your walk as a way to see if it's getting better. And then that the way you walk scales up to everything else because it's one of our most simple or straightforward uh, human movements. So it's not about the walk. The walk is the consequence. Yeah. I think there's an element for people of like, you know, we try and learn to do some quite complicated stuff a lot of the time. Like it might be trying to learn how to do a handstand or as an adult or even just people just generally, even if it's not moving, just trying to do complicated things. And you, and you think of, if I think of myself a number of years ago, a conversation about walking, I'd just be like walking. Well, like why, why do you have to, how can you walk like badly? But then actually you just walk down the street and walk behind a few people and you see that everyone walks in lots of weird and, and wonderful and, and funny ways and like stripping it right back. It's making me, some people won't agree on this, but stuff that we take for granted, like just being able to stand up. So just being able to stand up, like think I weigh like 80 odd kilos, whatever, like just the fact that my, Bones can stay there and things are like, like even that in itself is like, um, is, is phenomenal, really. If you actually like take a second to go back and think about it. So I love the idea. We had, um, Ryan, um, Hurst from, uh, gold medal bodies, GMB. And he, he said something about walking. He was like the idea of like, how beautifully can you walk? And I love the idea of actually trying to, um, trying to make it into something, not, not overdo it, but I, I just, I liked, I, it was the first time I'd sort of, my mind had got the idea of like, well, maybe, maybe this is a bit of something. There was, I've got a question on, you mentioned there, you used a phrase, you said like, talking about the different joints, you said, when you've got full range of motion, and then da 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 and when we're talking about gait or running, like, so I'm training for uh, uh, 135 miles, so it's like 200 kilometer ultra marathon, right? When I'm running, and I'm, that's in barefoot shoes, so my stride pattern is pretty small, and I'm definitely, definitely, definitely not using the full range of motion at my hips and at my knees, etc. Um, so where does that, where does that, in something like walking or very slow running or lots of activities, we don't actually need or use that full range of motion, like? Why is that full range of motion a necessity if I'm not going to use it for that for that thing? Yeah. So um, the the cool thing about walking is the incredible efficiency that's built into all of our tissues in order for us to do it. So um, there's a lot of nerdy stuff around muscles and and joints and all the different tissues about how they're they're most efficient at their isometric range, just this tiny little movement that they do. And that's their greatest efficiency. And that's the majority of the movements or the use of those tissues that we have every day, just reaching for my glass of water, you know, walking, walking around doing things, even running and walking. You're using only the, a a tiny bit of that full axis of range of motion that you have, because that's your most efficient use of it. 
And so the majority of our use is just within that, that range because that's how we just get around with ease. But there are times when you need a greater range of motion. You've yeah. got to be able to reach for things. Some, some people, like dancers, do the splits and kick their legs up high, and yeah, we need yeah. to do these things. But for the majority of our daily life, we work within this tiny isometric range of our muscles. But the thing is that with what we do with anatomy and motion is that there's a reason why the course was called finding center it's because everybody when you stand when you're when you're uh, seated when you're just at rest your body your nervous system has an idea of where your center is so you'll often see people who are like they sit like this or like you know are your shoulders level yeah it looks feels normal to me, right? And yeah. so your yeah. perception of where your center is, is based on all those negotiations that have happened throughout your injury history. And your nervous system will say, well, this is level for me, because that's where my center, my perceived center is. Yeah. So if I try to go to the left with my head, if my head is already tilted to the left, I can go a little bit, but then I can probably go a lot further to the right. So if you are, if your center is a little bit off your anatomical center, where your perceived center is, you're going to have less range going one way than the other. And so what we're doing in, um, with anatomy and motion is reteaching your nervous system where center is, because you have the greatest potential for movement, greatest potential for um, strength in those muscles, the greatest resilience when everything starts in its anatomical center. So it's kind of like the idea of if you have a slingshot, if you pull that elastic really far back, your rock is going to go all across the field. But if you pull it back only a tiny bit, it's going to fall near your feet. And so it's the same thing with those muscles. If, you're, if you move that, that slingshot further away or closer to you, that distance that that muscle will pull is going to be different, which is going to change how far you can send that rock. And so that's that same idea that if you have a that ideal, that center awareness of the joints, you can centrate all your joints and you can stack them up, then you're going to be able to use those muscles to the best of their advantage. So we hear all about tight, weak, short, long muscles. Those are muscles that have just been stuck because essentially muscles are just dumb managers of joint position. They're like, well, I never move, so eh, whatever. And then suddenly you move that joint and it goes, I got to catch that sucker because that pelvis is going way over there and I have to catch it. So we want to be able to re-remind the nervous system where the center is so that you have that full potential to move those muscles that are attached to it. And amazing things happen like uh, I will teach a hip to flex well and a knee to flex well underneath it so that the, all the joints find their center and they're able to get in and out of those flexions together and someone doubles their squat weight. All we did was just yeah. alignment. And they, they, they text me astonished. They're like, what did you do? I've been trying for months and months to get stronger and foam roll and do all these things. And you asked me to lean forward and do something with my hip and then do something with wedges under my foot. And suddenly, like, now I, I doubled it. And my coach is like, what did you do? Well, I just taught you to move your joints together, right? To, to show the muscles what their job is. And I've had lots of people say that. They're like, I didn't change anything. I didn't get stronger, but somehow I'm stronger. Why is that? Like, well, because we've gotten your efficiency back by showing your body where it needed to be. And then your brain went, oh, that's better. I'll do a bit more of that.
Yeah, we've seen that before with, with training athletes. There was a, um, I'm thinking back to Richard Whitehead that, that Jack and I both trained over the years. We spent a lot of time doing um, one scene. I've been working with him maybe four or five years. He's a double leg amputee, so he used to deadlift off his off his stump, so through knee amputee. Um, and the guy was strong. He got cool pull 200 kilos off the floor at that time. And we did a load of work which was just focused on like motor control balance, sort of like challenging his ability to coordinate the system together looking at spine position during different hinging patterns. And, and it's interesting because I think we were achieving the same thing, but going about it maybe in a slightly different kind of context and, and ways, but essentially getting him to understand how to move more efficiently. He came back in in the, in the January, having done no maximal strength training, and his three rep max before the block of training was 200 kilos. He came in and did 220, 10% on a 200 kilo deadlift from not lifting heavy weights. And it was literally just that thing of, the system got more efficient. It knew how to apply force more effectively. And I've since told that story so many times because lots of people in training just get hell-bent on how much force can I try and produce. And you go, and actually, if you take a kinetic chain approach and think about how you can integrate that more effectively, think about how efficient, how, how much force you can apply efficiently. You don't actually need to be, you don't, you don't need such a big top-end ceiling of strength if you've got the ability to apply what you have got more efficiently. And mm. I think that really is like, for me, when you get strong, on top of an optimized system, you just like take the rate limiter off, right? You, there's just opportunity everywhere. Yeah, and, you, and you'll see this too with, and you, you'll know someone who's a beginner at something and someone who's, who's more advanced at it, just looking at, you can see just the aesthetic of the movement, how it's different. So as you become more efficient, as you go from point A to point B through the movement more smoothly, it becomes more beautiful. And so we see that with uh, it, um, with dancers. The beginner is trying to figure out how to get something done, and the, the advanced dancer, it almost slows it down because it's just so efficient. And we have a, a lot of in um, dancers, like the male dancers need to be able to lift their partners and smoothly transition them through lifts. And it's the same thing. If you can apply the force with momentum at the right time and the right speed, it just slows everything down and makes it smoother. And so we see this all the time. You'll see, um, I, I love watching really um, proficient movers in a whole, whole bunch of different things, fighters, you know, soccer players, hockey players, because when they really dial in that, that um, the alignment and the movement, it's so smooth and effortless looking. It may, be, it may be really hard to execute the movement, but they just make it look so easy because the efficiency is there. And it's all about dialing that efficiency and being able to use all of the pieces of the body in the way that they're intended to, to get that movement done. And we just see, it just for some reason, that just looks easy. And you'll say that, you made that look so easy. It's not easy, but making it smoother. Yeah, yeah, is um, figure skating. I remember watching it when you when you see it, and there's like you've got this guy, and this he's, he's, this his partner will skate towards him like pretty much full tilt, and literally he picks her up, single arm presses overhead, and he's like skating on ice, holding this girl, like smile on his face, and his, his partner's maybe I don't know, they're not big people, right? But at least fifty kilos, because like most there's not that many. Plus people, the weight like, of the ice skates. Yeah, <laughs> and the costume. Like <laughs> yeah, well, of course, yeah, sometimes it's not like that. That's not much. Um, 55, let's say 50 kilos, single arm, making it look like it's absolutely nothing. And I'm like, I don't know many people that can chuck a 55 kilo dumbbell overhead. Single and he's arm, out of breath. It look that easy. 
Yeah. He's out of breath because those routines uh, are ice. full out <laughs> on ice. <laughs> yeah. With millions of people watching and judges. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's super cool. And, yeah, I had the same thing. I, w I was a competitive dancer as well, and I would have these lifts where I'd have a blind lift that I'd be caught above my partner's head. So you would be, uh, you know, at peak exertion, and you would be flipped upside down. So your vestibular system would be, and then I would be lightheaded up at the top, and I'd have to smile. <laughs> and then I get flipped down, and then I get spun. So I'm also dizzy. Yeah. And I'm seeing stars and I'm smiling. And then people at the end of the performance, that looks so easy. That looks so great. I said, I had to use the, what is the, um, the, the maneuver to stop yourself from passing out. I use it twice in my routine. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I made it look efficient and I know how to breathe so I don't pass out. <laughs> yeah. What would, you, what would you say, Holly, to people that are just like chasing intensity in their training program? So I, I train the CrossFit box now, so I see a lot of intensity in like hard workouts and people flogging themselves. And sometimes it's fair to say that those people don't really have a very good command of basic movement patterns in terms of when they are moving, it doesn't look effortless. Let's kind of just put it that way. Um, but the nature of the sports and fitness and even like health and wellness space and to a certain degree in certain circles is really prizing intensity at the moment and work. So how do people kind of take some of this stuff on board? Because coming from calisthenics, a lot of it is around strength and beauty and control. And, and we kind of get this, right? Slow things down, move with precision, make it look effortless. That's the kind of the objective, because if it does that, then it requires less effort. Good kind of skill to be able to have. What do you say to people who are kind of like, I've got to train hard, I've got to smash it. That's, that's kind of, that's the name of the game. How do they kind of find a balance between these, the, the sort of the movement that you're talking about and the movement that they've become used to, to performing? Yeah, and that's tricky because the work that I do is very much the opposite of that. Tiny, mm -hmm. tiny little movements, a lot of awareness, paying attention to yourself and patience. And so that's the complete opposite of that go, 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 push, you know, go really hard. But I would ask them a question of, um, if you go, if you go into CrossFit, you probably like challenges, right? You like really pushing yourself. So if challenge is what you want, I've got a challenge for you. Yeah. I've got something that's really going to challenge you. You're going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. But if you really want to get better at this, here's your ultimate challenge. Slow down. Pay attention to these tiny little movements. Work on your breathing. Find things that you don't like to do and do those. Right. So a lot of it is mindset. It's and and that's uh, that's an interesting thing, because I know with myself with dancing, I got really excited. Oh, I'm going to be intermediate. Great. We're going to go right to advanced. It's going to be great. I got injured, had to go back to basics. But also our coach was saying all the time, if you really want to advance, go take the basic levels again. Start from scratch. Get really, really good at those simple things. And me at the time, I'm like, nah, nah. I've been dancing for 20 years. I don't need that. <clears throat> Not going to do that. Nope. Kept pushing. Got injured. Had no choice. I broke my foot. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't dance. So I was on the floor. Refining little things. Learning how to hinge. Learning how to breathe. It was so humbling because I missed out on my first nationals. And it was devastating, but it was the best thing that ever happened because I had no choice but to dial it back and figure this out. And that's what led me to doing what I'm doing today. 
because I was pushing so hard. I was training every day. I was getting ready for this and fracture, and that's it. Yeah. And I'm so much better now. My movement's so much better. My breathing, everything is so much better because I took the time. And, and we see some of the best dancers that came out of our school, you see them in the beginner levels all the time because they know. They have to go back and master. And if you're really, really good at the basics, can crush anything. I think everybody should focus on being world class at the basics. Like it's just it's not the sexy stuff. It's the bit that people don't want to do because it. But I, over the years in sport and training, have said the same thing. Just if you do the basics really well, you're probably going to stay injury free largely, and you're going to do pretty well. Like in in comparison of the the the, the, the general population who don't want to kind of focus on that because it looks boring. Sorry, Jacko. Shoot. And uh, no, just uh, I've got a, a similar um, good story about. Um, breaking my foot and then training in a particular way, but didn't actually lead me down the same path as <laughs> path as you. In that, uh, I used to play rugby and injured my, injured my foot, and me and the SNC coach went, um, "Well, you're in it. You've got you know. You, we knew I wasn't going to play for at least three months whilst I was going through the rehab, and it was like, but your upper body we can we can train. So we <laughs> got we just basically went." Do you reckon, how do you reckon you'd play if you were like properly beefed up a bit? And so I put on literally like 20 kilos. So I was over 100 kilos at the time, which is anyone that <laughs> saw me during that period knew it was like, you look like Jacko, but sort of, have you eaten him? Um, and <laughs> I, <laughs> I came back from that and I was slower. Um, I <laughs> got heavily <laughs> criticized. And then interestingly, the following preseason, stripped down all of my weight, got to the lightest I ever played at, which was like 86 kilo. But I'd retained a load of the strength that we'd built and um, actually then played uh, played my best uh, rugby at that point. But there was a, yeah, I did not, my, my, I guess my point on it was, you said about mindset is just like, is it? Like it, it it's it's everything, right? And you got you had that we both experienced the same injury we both broke our foot it might have been a different metatarsal or whatever but we both broke our foot and two different very different mindsets of, of approach towards it and i think that that happens for a whole host of reasons and, and how i would approach that now would be totally different you, you the experiences and things that you have like change you over time right and um i think that tim tim said it a number of times about injuries injuries being a great opportunity like for something else um but i think there's yeah, the, depending on depending on what it is, where you are in your own sort of journey of your training and understanding of your body and like what you want out of it and just where you are in your life, like your your mindset will be affected and the decisions you make during that will be will be affected. Um, but I, like I do to think next time, Jacko, you'll target 110 kilos. <laughs> yes, bigger, just get bigger, <laughs> bigger. Right. That was the problem. What not big enough? <laughs> I, um, I've got I've got a question about the. Um, about my friend who's um, no it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a question it's a question about that you made a really good point about or we're talking you know there was a, a big emphasis made on like efficiency and um one of the things that i've been trying to do as i build up for this ultra marathon is to be as efficient as possible at like the two main things that i'm going to have to do whilst i'm doing it i'm going to have to take a lot of steps and i'm going to have to breathe many times so i'm trying to be as efficient as i can with my breathing and as efficient as i can with my like running mechanics and um something that i experienced last year in the build up to my first ever marathon was that i'd be okay running um say 5k 
And then you build up gradually and it's like, okay, I can run 10K now, but when I get towards the end of a 10K, my right knee starts to hurt a little bit. And I do notice at the bottom of my pistol squat, my right knee has been a problem. I did injure it and I played rugby and it's, I'm aware of it every now and then. If I sit cross-legged, it's happy one way, but if I switch my legs over, my right knee doesn't like it on that way. And so I'm aware that I've got something going on on that, on that right side from, from an old injury. And then um, I would get towards like, 18, like building up towards a half marathon, like getting close to like 20K and building up progression. I'm like, my right knee doesn't hurt anymore, but like something on the left side is like talking to me. And and as I, uh, when I did the, the, the furthest, when I did the marathon, the furthest I'd done is a half. And so like, I remember running um, in the second half of the marathon, talking to a lady, she looked very comfortable. I was like, have you done many marathons? She's like, yeah, I've done quite a few. She's like, how about you? And I was like, well, this is exciting. So I looked at my watch of how far, I was like, I've never run this far before. And she was like, what? You've never, you've never done more than a half in your training. I was like, well, it wasn't sort of the plan, but I just didn't have time to do it. Type of thing. And um, so it was like, this was great. And as I got, <laughs> the thing that was funny was so, I got to the end and my left adductor was like so close to cramp, like on the, on the verge of cramp, you know, when cramps like sort of almost weirdly nice, but not nice. It's like right on the edge of like cramping. You're like teeing with it almost. And, um, and then when I, and so my left adductor and then my left, it felt like, um, uh, it felt like my, uh, well, I can't think of the name, um, top of IT band. TFL. TFL, yeah. Left TFL, like, at the end, like, m- like full cramp and, like, just wouldn't, like, some of that left side just, like, was just minging and just, like, locking up. And I was like, this is interesting because the thing that I was aware of in my sort of, like, day-to-day life that was the issue wasn't the issue. It didn't, or it didn't, just didn't play itself out when I actually went further and further and further, and I felt like the further I went, then I start to find out what's really going on. And then, and then I unpicking that in going through some, some of some movements that I'd like to do, I'd notice that like, Oh, actually, yeah, you thought it was your right knee that restricted you on like a Cossack squat, like a lateral injury. It's actually, it was that left adductor on the other side, but you just weren't aware. Like I had to go further in something to find out that, that that was the case. Does that make any, one, does that make any, because since then, well, does that make any sense? Since then, like addressing my, that left adductor, um, and it sounds like some similar type of very simple little exercises that, that you're talking about relating to, uh, relating to gait seem to be and have made like quite a big impact on that. Yeah. And, and what happens is that uh, a quote that I like to use is where you think it is, it ain't. Right, so if you think it's your right knee, it might actually might actually be the opposite leg, like you're like you're noticing. Yeah, yeah, no. So it might that, not sure. be the, yeah. And so one thing that we like to do is, um, which by the way, it's a bit mind blowing for people, right? Want... Going like, oh, the thing that's hurting yeah. is. And <laughs> yeah. Last time we did we did an ultra the other a few weeks ago, and it was with someone like running and chatting with someone. I was like, and he was like, oh, something was hurting earlier. I was like, don't worry, if it's hurting now, it's not a problem. Because like it, yeah, it, it, yeah, it will be, totally. it, will, it will be something else later. So don't don't worry, just ignore yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to get curious about what's going on in your body, um, if if your right knee is hurting, your left knee probably isn't. So you can take a look if you want to pay attention to your knees and find out what your left knee is doing that your right knee isn't. So if you can start noticing the the 
the time that it bends, how it bends, if it rotates or not, what's going on. Say if your left knee is feeling okay, it can be your teacher. Your right knee can be the student. So you can go, okay, well, I can notice that, okay, when my left knee bends, it's doing this, but my right knee is not doing that. So I wonder if I taught my right knee how to do that, if that would be better or worse. And just get curious that way. Because that's, I mean, that's essentially what we would have done in the past. You wouldn't have had orthos or, you know, mm. osteos or PTs or anything to help you. You just have to sort of learn what you could from your body. And we also probably spend a lot more time paying attention to ourselves too. But if you are curious about why is it that my left adductor is doing that, well, what's your right adductor doing? Maybe it knows better. Maybe it's moving in a different way. And so you can just get curious about what's going on and start to let your body teach you what it needs. Have you... um... Have you come across PRI, Postural Restoration Institute? Do you... Yes, I took one of their courses okay. in May. Yeah, okay. And how did you... So, like, um, uh, pelvic alignment in in walking, how the pelvis is supposed to... Make, like, some of those... Can you talk us through a little bit of, like, those, those intricate, like, small movements? Because, I say, my friend, me, um, I feel like there's, there's definitely that sort of... Um, relating to that left side like a restriction like i can like if you say like what you know what do, do things feel symmetrical or not and then that whole thing of like should it be exactly symmetrical because potentially we're not symmetrical on the inside um but if i you know was to sit into my right hip it feels like you know that, that classic one where i can really sit into that right hip and it feels really nice and loose but if i try and shift over onto the left hand side it feels like sticky and it just doesn't want to like sit in there what are some of the um those more smaller intricate you know not sort of you know, just anterior and posterior tilt that people would generally sort of bang on about. But like, what is supposed to happen in, in the pelvis when we're walking and what's supposed to move? Is, is Have you got any sort of simple ways of breaking that down for people so they can start to have a bit more of that awareness that you've talked about? Yeah, uh, the pelvis moves like a figure eight. So it's like a, a figure eight type of movement. And so we want to be able to do all of those movements as you're going through your gait cycle. So in, um, there's essentially two shapes that we make, pronation and supination. And when you're pronating, what's happening is your pelvis is tilting forward, so that's your anterior tilt. You're also, your pelvis is hiking up on the side that you're weight-bearing on, and you're also rotating away from that side. So it's doing all three of those things, sort of the top of that figure eight. And then as you come back down again, as you swing your leg through, everything's going to level out. So your pelvis is going to be from tilted forward. It's going to untuck to neutral. It's going to height or drop back down to neutral and it's going to rotate back to facing forward. So we want to be able to yeah. come from that fully pronated position. It's going to come back down. And then as you swing your leg through, the heaviness of your leg is going to start pulling your pelvis forward. Yeah. So we're going to go into more of a supination shape. It's going to tuck your tail under. It's going to hike that side up and rotate. That swinging of your leg is going to pull your pelvis along on that side. And then you're going to strike your heel and then you're going to start into that weight bearing again. So we want to go through that entire sort of figure eight type of cycle. And what you're, what you're noticing is that shifting side to side. So your pelvis will shift on heel strike. And so what's happening is your pelvis is sending, you're essentially sending your whole lower body over onto that heel strike side and keeping yeah. your torso away from it. Yeah. So it's sending you half, like it's a off axis type of shape where yeah. your lower Managing body your is over of mass, there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so we want to be able to get that center of mass going in that figure eight kind of configuration. But what happens is that your body has gone through a bunch of things where it's negotiated how much of that shift to side to side yeah. that you were explaining that you're able to do. And there's going to be a reason why there's a blockage a, a roadblock stopping you from doing that. It could be a foot that can't supinate. It could be a knee that can't extend. It could be a scap that won't, uh, won't um, upwardly or downwardly rotate. It could be your jaw doesn't want to move. It could be anywhere. Yeah. And so we want to get curious about the connections between the stuff that's happened to your body and the thing you can't do today. And, it, and, and like I say, it could be anywhere. It's probably not about the pelvis at all. It's probably about something else where your yeah, pelvis is saying, right. it's either not efficient to go there or it was bad one day, so we're not going to go there anymore. Yeah. So that's why we want to get curious. We want to know the quality of that movement. So when you send your pelvis there, are you actually sending your pelvis there? Or are you locked together with other parts? and it's not moving. So we want to be able to, to unravel what's going on and why your, your body's come up with this strategy. Yeah. When, um, just for the, um, those that want to see some of the visuals, like have, a, have, uh, do make sure you watch this on, on YouTube, but just as a bit of a, as you were like doing, you know, you were showing the motion with your hands and, and, and overdoing the movement, presumably like in terms of being able to show us like how much, how much, what, what sort of distances are we talking? Are we talking centimeters, millimeters? Like how far are these sort of rotations and these hip hikes? Like how much is that? Because all this is happening automatically for us, right? We're not thinking about any of these movements. As you said, you can't think yourself to do it right. You have to sort of retrain that neuroplasticity. What sort of distances? So people can get a bit of a gauge of that in their mind of like that they're, they're going through. Well, they're pretty tiny. Like we were talking about staying within that sort of isometric range in your muscles. So, um, each of us is different heights and widths and stuff. So I can't say like one millimeter on me would be a few millimeters on someone who's bigger, right? So it's, um, but what we want to do is we want to have equal access to each of the three planes of motion. So there's some, you'll, and you'll see this when people walk, you'll see people that really yeah. rotate a lot, yeah, 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 but they don't really get any frontal plane movement or they don't actually tilt their pelvis forward and back, but they do t a ton of one of the other ones. So what you want to get curious about is which of those three planes are you not actually doing and then you want to reintroduce that and then let your nervous system decide how much of it it wants to use so we don't want to be relying only on one uh, one of those three planes you want to be able to do all three of them and then let your body take from that as much as it needs for its efficiency yeah okay cool there was one other question I wanted to ask you was around, um, you mentioned about breathing a couple of times. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm one of the master instructors with the Oxygen Advantage. If you come across Patrick McKeon's work oh, great. Yeah. as well. Um, and yep. so where does, uh, you know, breathing is one of those, move, you know, talk about movement patterns. It's one of those movement patterns that's going on in the background of if you don't do it, you're dead. So it must, it's, it's, it's pretty important, but it has that automatic function. Like where does it play, what role does it play, well, anything you want to say about it, but I guess um, that you think is important in, in this conversation and, and also, I guess, a more, so that lets you answer it in any way you want, but also a direct question of how, how does breathing play or does it play a specific role in those different parts of that gate, that, that, that gate cycle that you were, were describing? 
Yeah, so um, it doesn't map on exactly with the phases of gait because of course as you know as a runner you're not going to just increase you're not going to just inhale on your heel strike <laughs> like you know you need to breathe and move constantly and we don't want to be forcing ourselves to i only inhale when i anterior tilt like you, you don't want to yeah. be thinking about those sorts of things yeah. but if you're not breathing well it will impact your pain perception so if yeah. you are, um, and I do this all the time, I, my other hat that I wear is a physiotherapy assistant. So every oh, single cool. person that I work with, either through physio or as a movement coach, breathing is one of the components that I assess and, and uh, restore. Without, without fail, doesn't matter if you're a pro dancer, a, you know, a desk jockey, whatever you're doing, breathing is one of the first things that we work on. And either that is getting you to be able to find your diaphragmatic breath, being able to restore the alignments of things so you can find that ease of breath so that you can redistribute those pressures properly so that you can... Um, and I've had people's posture change just simply by teaching them to breathe with ease. Yeah. So no changes yeah. in cueing of any type, type except getting them to breathe a little bit better. And so I, I work a lot with, and as you mentioned, Postural Restoration Institute. I took their course on um, postural respiration. Yeah. And uh, that's a whole really interesting set of, of, of ideas around the fact that your chest cavity has different things left and right. Yeah. And throughout the course of your life, that causes a, an imbalance in just the shape that you create, your resting shape, but also that changes where the airflow is, which changes your ability to move your shoulder or tilt your head or all those different sorts of things that we can chase all over the place. Mm-hmm. So we can be chasing a shoulder that hurts, a knee that hurts, and don't realize that your breathing and your pelvic floor activation are off. And simply teaching you to breathe better can clean these things up and you can chase those with foam rollers and massage and all these things and not know. We have no idea. And that's one of the most common things that people tell me is, I had no idea my body was doing those things or that my body couldn't do those things or that that was a thing I was supposed to do. We've often been told, stand up straight. Don't fidget. Don't do that. Keep your knees like this. Or going back to your first question, um, my, my mom had bunions, my gran had bunions, my mm-hmm. sister has bunions, they're genetic. But who did you learn how to walk from? From yeah. observing the people around you. That have got bunions. Um, <laughs> I had somebody that have bunions, right. And so they, well, they're genetic. Well, it's actually that you learned to human by observing mm. the humans around you. There's yeah. a really cute video that went around about a month ago of a little girl who walked around with her arms behind her back and sort of strolled like this. And she was, you know, two maybe a little toddler and the parents asked how how did you learn how to do that i don't know and then she she spent a lot of time with her grandfather who wandered and strolled (laughs) like this and looked at things and and so she was mimicking grandpa because grandpa is her authority figure of of how to human (laughs) right and so we do learn and i've i know people who learn how to drink out of a coffee cup by watching the people that taught them how to eat and he licked his coffee cup before creating the steel and his sister did that and his mom and his grandma did that. Yeah. But his dad didn't, his uncle didn't. It was that they all learned how to drink out of a cup from the same woman. And so we think these things are genetic. We think that we, and, and you know, we think we can excuse them as things that we can't do anything about, but you actually can. Yeah. You don't realize the things, like I say to my, my patients all the time, high five your body because it's getting stuff done. It's clever. 
It's doing things yeah. you have no idea that it's doing. Yeah. Do you, have you to come keep across, you going. Have you come across Dr. Perry Nicholson? Yeah. Yeah. He, we had him on. Uh, he he said a great phrase that I love. He was like, "Your body is doing the best it can in the current situation that it's finding itself in, and um, if that's pain in a certain area, like that, like but there's a psychology thing in that in in." And not fighting against it and feeling like your body's let you down. I think that that's um, that's really really difficult to engage in positively, but um, really quite powerful when uh, when when people are able to, for sure. Nice, so, um, Holly. This has been um, yeah, absolutely fantastic and um, eye opening. Um, I think that potentially people might have. I've got a ton more questions that I'll probably want to uh, to ask as well. And if people do have um, some questions uh, or, or want to get in touch, where's the best place for people to connect with you, find out a little bit more? Yeah, so my website is flowmovement.ca. So I'm in Canada, so that's the .ca at the end of it. Cool. Um, my, my business is Flow Movement Therapy. Um, if you want to get a taste of uh, sort of my process and my tutorials. I have a web, uh, sorry, a YouTube channel as well. So if you look for flow movement therapy, I have lots of tutorials there. You can get a sense of my thought process and try out some of the types of exercises I do for a variety of common aches and pains. Um, and yeah, I, I take international online clients. And so we can, you can book a free half hour session with me. We can chat about whether this is the right type of approach for you. If you have any questions, I'm happy to, to chat with it, uh, with you about it. You, as you can tell, I really love talking about this. So I love <laughs> yeah. talking to people that are like, I, I, I've been told I've been, you know, sent through the ringer. I've gone to various doctors and I've been dismissed and it's great to finally get somebody who gets it. <laughs> so <laughs> I get a lot of people like that that just want to chat because they're like, finally, I think I'm on the right track. <laughs> so yeah. glad to talk to them. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we put all those, uh, all those links in the, in the show notes so people can just click through. Fantastic. Yeah. So Holly, just a massive thank you for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate your time and sharing some wisdom with us and some really practical takeaways. And I think there's lots there for people to have a think about. And um, my encouragement to people is to just go and spend some time just just doing a little bit of self-reflection. We often say that when we speak to people um, who've got a similar kind of, a, of approach and just um, a way of seeing movement in the world that it sometimes takes a little bit of digesting and some, some internal work to, to understand where you're at. And then hopefully, as Jacko said, if people got questions, they can reach out and get in touch. So thank you very much. I don't know about you, Timbo, and the listeners. I'm uh, fairly tempted to take uh, Holly up on the on the offer of a three thirty minute call to see uh, uh, to see what I can address further with uh, uh, with my running gait. I think that that would be highly beneficial. But um, yeah, taken a lot away from from that session. I think one of the I keep saying session. I guess it just felt like a session. But uh, um, from that episode, from that podcast, that conversation in that. The, the, the key thing I think that I'm going to take away from that was I liked the phrase when she said like, uh, or two things, like listening to those like little movements of your body and paying more attention to those little finer um, details. And then potentially looking at using, a, if you've got a good leg and then one leg that's not happy, like just doing a little bit of like self-analysis, going, what's that one doing that that one isn't doing? Or what's that one doing that that one can't do? Um, to give yourself a little bit of... Um, uh, a little bit of personal feedback and, and, uh, and making giving your, giving yourself the empowerment to be you know your own coach. Um, yeah. You know, there's no what nobody can ever know 
what it feels like to be in your body. Um, and I think that like there's we look outward too much for get other people to sort our problems out, whereas actually maybe maybe there's a little bit more inside of us that we can potentially listen to. That's getting a bit woo-woo, but that's where my mind's at. It's all right. It's all right. I think it's a, she made the point, and, and this is kind of confirming a lot that we've talked about in the past, is that the real power is understanding and identifying what your weak links are. And But that's difficult mm. work, and not a lot of people are prepared to go and actually spend that time managing the remote ego confronting the things that they're not very good at it's much easier just to keep doing the things that you are good at or moving in a way which kind of feels like it's the most efficient but then i think there's within that it's sort of if you're not in a pain ridden state and you can do what you want to do but you not that sort of motivated to to discover it i think it often comes to a place where you break down and then have to confront it um, because it's while you're doing what you want to do, it's that thing you can't. People won't change unless they want to change, and sometimes it is a bit of a de- derailment in the term, form of an injury which stops you from doing that, which will then force you into it. Well, the better thing to be doing will actually to be addressed that before the injury, because you're going to lose far less training time and, and have to go through rehabilitation process. So, I, my my kind of encouragement of that is if you are if there is something that you are know that you know is not right do something about it and try and try and find the stuff that you're not very good at and do more of that in your training because typically that's going to be the biggest sort of rock that you can put in the jar yeah and particularly for calisthenics if you've picked up a shoulder injury because you've not been doing your movement preparation properly then make sure you sort that out um in the with the with your movement preparation in the school guys sense but if it's if you're feeling like getting an injury right you need to you know like i say who do you call go not don't go don't call the ghostbuster do you know anyone timber that could help someone out with a shoulder problem well uh, holly's not the only person who offers free 30 minute consultations jacko <laughs> so, <laughs> you know where i'm at if people have got some issues around that and they want to find out a little bit more about shoulder specifics we can i will also geek out on the shoulder with you so any problems give me a shout you can find us dynamicshows.com or email on tim at schoolofcalisthenics.com I'm available on both cool right well I think we're ready to uh, sign off this episode so keep exploring your physical potential through movement strength and play class dismissed